Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited for today's guest, country music artist, author, and LGBTQ plus activist, Shelley Wright. We will talk with Shelley in just a moment. First, thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and rate and review, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So let me tell you a little bit about Shelley Wright. She's a country music artist, author, LGBTQ plus activist, and was named Top New Female Vocalist by the Academy of Country Music. And she rose to fame as a commercial country singer in the 1990s. And she has since released nine studio albums and charted more than 17 singles on the Billboard charts, including Shut Up and Drive, Single White Female, which you are listening to right now, and The Bumper of My SUV. She made history by being the first country music star to publicly come out as gay, which she wrote about in her 2010 memoir, Like Me. The documentary film about her coming out process, Wish Me Away, was nominated for an Emmy Award. Subsequently, her life has changed to include advocacy and corporate engagement around diversity, equity, and inclusion, and she currently serves as Chief Diversity Officer at Unispace, a global strategy, design, and delivery firm. She's also Vice Chair of the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network Board of Directors, which is the leading national education organization focused on ensuring safe schools for all students. She was also recognized as a 2023 Cranes New York Business Notable LGBTQ Leader. And her latest book is 2022's My Moment, 106 Women on Fighting for Themselves. Shelly, welcome into the back room. Thanks, Andy. It's good to be here. I'm it, finally in. Yes, you're in the back room. This is where all I'm the good in. stuff happens. I have to start by saying I am so in awe of you, so moved by your strength, your character, the choices you've made in your life, just what you decided to put out in the world. I think took incredible bravery and I'm really interested and excited to talk with you about all that today because you've done things that very few people do. Well, I received that, Andy. Thank you. Um, I know that's heartfelt and I really appreciate it. And uh, I I just, I feel lucky to, to be where I am. And I, I, I think the, I think the more years that kind of pass between that, that, as years go on, I, I see myself um, a little differently than I did. And um, some days I'm like, damn girl, go. And then some days uh, I feel, you know, um, defeated in, in a thousand ways. But I, I know we can get into all of that. But thank mm-hmm. you for your kind words. And and likewise, you, uh, you've done some pretty phenomenally brave uh, things in your life, which is why I'm delighted to be with you today. Well, you know, it's interesting I've always taken the position that everybody goes through stuff. Everybody has challenges. In your case, your challenges were internal. Like, who am I and what kind of life do I want to live? And how truthful and honest do I want to be with myself and the world? And um, I watched your documentary. I really wanted to understand what makes you tick. Um, I mean, your music is great, but that's not who you are. Who you are is a person, and, and your journey has been about your desire to live openly and freely in the ways that you uh, couldn't for 30 some odd years of your life. Um, I want to also ask you about your health before we get started. You had a stroke in 2018. Everything good? Yeah, everything's fine. I had a stroke in late 2018. It was a cerebellar stroke. 
Um, so, you know, certainly not one to, to mess around with. I, I've had chronic migraines my entire life, and there appears to be some correlation between migraine and uh, stroke. And I, I was having a doozy of a migraine. Uh, ended up, I was about to go on tour. It was, I think, a Thursday afternoon or Thursday morning. We dropped the boys off at school and headed to Lenox Hill um, Hospital. Yeah, about once a year, I would have to go, like, get an IV and they'd give me medication and try to knock a headache down that I couldn't with my usual medications. Uh, went to the doctor, a doctor I'd seen before in the ER. Um, she said, I, I don't like this, this headache. It feels different. Um, she did some imaging, uh, CAT scan, um, um, MRI, and she said, hey, you've, you've had a stroke. So wow. all is well. I had some physical therapy. I'm now on a killer um, migraine medicine, prophylactic medicine called a Jovi. Um, and I have had, I used to get 12 migraines uh, a month. Andy, I have had four migraines since early 2019. And that's just because of the medication. Yeah. Unless something like blew in my brain that needed to blow for, wow. you know, 50 years, but all is well. And it's, it is a game changer to not have to contend with, uh, with migraine. So Really, God, really good. Thanks for asking. I'm good. Well, I'm really glad to hear all that. So I mentioned that I watched your documentary. It came out in 2012. It's called Wish Me Away. And a lot of the questions I'm going to ask you and the references I make are from things I've gleaned from the film. Um, you said that since its release, you still receive letters from people in the LGBTQ plus community who said it has helped them acknowledge their own sexuality, to deal with their own lives in that way. And that really resonated with me because I made a documentary about Adrian, and I still get letters, still get a lot of mail from artists, from women. And so it must be very gratifying when you decide to do something like that, because I would imagine the decision to do it was probably not an easy one, to put yourself out there the way you did, and so beautifully and poignantly. But then when you see what comes back... Then you realize, yeah, that that was worth it, right? Yeah, yeah. And just you mentioned uh, the documentary you made about um, about Adrian. I um, loved it. I was so moved. I can't stop thinking about the film itself. Obviously, I, I, I've been thinking about her a lot and who she would have been. And I feel like I feel robbed, and that I feel like that I would have followed her career. You know, I know everyone feels robbed, but those of us who got to kind of peek behind the curtain through your directorial kind of lens, um, you know, mission accomplished in kind of illustrating not only what you and your family and her friends lost, but what the, what the movie world and book world and poetry, I mean, she was, she was just getting started. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I love documentary film. It's my favorite medium to tell stories. Um, and yeah, you don't go into a documentary. Uh, you, you, you go in, well, ignorance is bliss in a lot of ways. I didn't really know what, what the process would be, but I did know that I was, you know, at this liminal space in my life. I'd begun, I decided to come out. I'd begun writing my book, mm -hmm. uh, Like Me, which um, Random House would would publish in 2010. Um, and in the course of my being in New York and kind of beginning, what I'm sure we'll get into was kind of my educating myself about the queer community because I, although I was part of it, 
I was so isolated from any real knowledge about the history of LGBTQ um, uh, rights and um, challenges, and I had no community. So I moved to New York to really kind of embed myself with people who knew a lot more than I did, who would help me, you know, make sure that when I did come out, I was an educated, strong, um, knowledgeable voice. And so in doing that, I was in someone's office, uh, Craig Carpell, you may know of Craig Carpell, a great, um, great publicity firm. And, and Craig had a poster on his office wall and it was of a documentary uh, film series or TV series that had been on Logo. Um, you may know that Logo was the LGBTQ, I think it still is, LGBTQ kind of cable channel or mm -hmm. cable outlet. And it was, um, I've forgotten the name of the documentary series, but it was one that I had watched in Nashville with my curtains closed and just, um, it, it devastated me. It inspired me. It scared the shit out of me. And so I, I said to Craig, Hey, I, that was a really powerful TV series. He said, Oh, you should meet the, uh, the filmmakers, the ones who, who did that, Bobby and Beverly. Mm. Um, and I, he said, you, you just, they're a couple, they're great filmmakers, producer, director, you should just meet them. They should be part of your circle. So a couple of weeks later, I met with them and just shared what I was doing. And they called me the next day and they said, hear us out. <laughs> we want to make a movie. And I knew instantly, yep, let's do it. And we did it. And it was terrifying and um, revelatory um, and I think somewhat in, important to, to your point, Andy, that I, I do hear every single day still um, from folks about how much my book and the movie meant to them. I also hear almost every single day, um, you know, negative feedback on you know, I'm going to hell and all of that. So many documentaries you watch of a similar nature you start. You can easily look at it and go, "Wow, these people!" It seems so performative, and people are very much aware of the cameras. And what I appreciated so much about your film was that you left you left nothing out there that wasn't just absolute genuine and heart wrenching, uh, which is what makes great documentaries. When when someone really decides to it's almost like when you get like an endoscopy, the camera goes inside, you know, and it's like seeing you from the inside out. And there were so many moments in the film that ranged from cringeworthy, not in terms of you and your behavior, but just parts of your yeah. life to heartbreak, to inspiration, to courage. Like it was just, it, it was perfect. And we got to know who Shelley Wright was, which was one of my motivations for my film. Who is... Adrian, and we really got a clear sense of who you were, who were the positive forces in your life, who were the negative forces in your life, what you risked. It was all so raw and so beautifully done. And, and it made me at times happy. It made me at times frustrated. It made me at times angry. I mean, there were times I got so angry. Um, and I, I want to talk to you about those soon as well. Uh, I cried, the parts of your dad, oh my God, I have three daughters, and it's just like went right into my heart. And so it, it's, it was very, very well done. So I want to go back and start with your background, your upbringing. And, and one of the things I initially noticed in the film is like when you, you have the footage of Wellsville, and as someone who grew up in Queens, who's lived in Manhattan for the last bazillion years, 
you get sort of a sense of comfort and security and you can almost delude yourself into thinking the whole world thinks the way you do because you live in this bastion of liberalism and all that. And then when you yeah. see like footage of that and you realize, oh my God, how does a young girl grow up gay in a town like that? I felt the isolation. I felt the loneliness, the you know, ostracizing that takes place with people who are out or who are openly gay. And so you were born in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, but you grew up in Wellsville, Kansas, and you, your family seemed really dysfunctional. I'll just put it out there. Yeah. Like, you know, and I identify yeah. with that because I, I could talk for yeah. hours about dysfunctional upbringings. So I, that's not yeah, a judgment. And, that's an identification. And, um, and, and uh, no judgment taken. And, and we should, you know, we have to measure things, right? We have to be able to say that's healthy, that's not healthy. Um, this is how we get better as a, as a species. And, and um, you know, to your point earlier, Andy, everybody has something. Um, everyone's hiding, protecting a secret. And, you know, we go to great lengths to protect and nurture our secrets, actually. Um, they become an entire, you know, a, a, an entirely um, a, a part of who we are, for better or for worse. And I didn't, I, you know, my dysfunctional family, um, you don't know it when you're in it mm -hmm. because you have no context, right? Similarly with what your, your point about my little hometown, uh, how you may feel like, oh, everybody thinks like I do because I'm liberal and grew up in New York, grew up in Queens and Manhattan. Um, you know, that, that, that holds for growing up in a small farm community in Kansas where there is a church on, you know, if not every corner, every street, and everyone looked the same. Um, we didn't even, we, we had a couple of Catholics in our town and they were different. They were the, they were the odd man out in Wellsville. We certainly had no, uh, people of color. We had no one in the town who identified as being gay, queer, trans, uh, you know, no one talked beyond gay at that point and anything having to do with homosexuality or gay was just a negative. It was, there was one guy in our town that everyone talked about, um, as being a pervert and a child molester. Um, he wasn't, he's was just a gay man, just mm. a closeted gay man. Um, and so, yeah, so the dis dysfunction of my family, um, Oh, I guess I kind of love it. I kind of love because I know where my family is now. And I know that, you know, my mom was a polio survivor. She passed in, in 2014 um, of cancer. And we can get into kind of what that looked like at the end because we had a very strained relationship um, until the end, mm -hmm. beautifully. Um, but my mom was a polio survivor, wicked smart. Uh, I'd come home and she'd be reading, you know, books about physics and engineering and American history, global history. Um, my dad had an eighth grade education, uh, had a really hard childhood. He's the only of his siblings who didn't end up in, of his brothers who didn't en end up in prison. Hmm. Um, I mean, just like he's a miracle. Um, and he is super, he's still living, super emotionally intelligent, super smart, a mathematician, like like nobody's business, a great engineer, um, was a contractor, construction work. After he got out of Vietnam, he came back and he and my mom put a ring on it, as it were, and decided to move forward and build their family. And there were, it would be an understatement to say that 
they hit uh, some speed bumps along the way. They, uh, they, you know, they ran the car off a bridge several times, but yet here, here I am and my siblings and I feel um, on the whole, the net net it, being Stan and Sherry's kids were a huge positive. Um, but, but, you know, it, it is, um, it's been as tricky as anyone else's um, dysfunctional family would, uh, would be. You said something in, in the film about your mom, quote, she has in many ways been the greatest source of confidence in my life and one of the greatest sources of fear and abandonment in my life, which illustrates yeah, the complicated nature that sometimes we have with our parents. Because one takeaway I took from the film is that they clearly were very supportive of your music career. They were musical people, you know, the yeah. way that you would sing with you kids and music was a part of your upbringing and you know i play the drums but i didn't really get a chance to do that because when i was a kid my parents said drums are too loud well imagine if ringo's mom said that to him you know like sorry right, ringo right. you know we'd have no ringo so when i see right. stories about how parents foster that kind of musical talent and passion uh i wish i had that and it must have been great to grow up in that kind of environment because look where you went and it's like there's there's yeah. connective tissue there right this is what parents need to understand there's connective tissue yeah that that's a, that's really well put andy and you know i benefited from a couple of growing up poor uh i know that had i not grown up poor i wouldn't have gone on to become a, a musician um College was not, this was not something anyone in my family talked about. No one had ever gone to college. We didn't have the money for college. Um, it was just, no one had modeled that. So we we knew that we had to get scrappy and figure out, you know, what, what are we good at and what can we go, um, you know, hustle at. My parents uh, it instilled into all three of us kids a really, um, a really kind of true, earnest work ethic. Their, their mantra was plan your work and work your plan. Mm. And they said, we don't care what you do with your life. Just, um, get good grades, stay out of jail, you know, work hard, be ethical, be honest, put more into the world than you take out. And so I benefited from very early on learning how to, how to really work hard and how to have, you know, failure, how to, how to deal with that, how to plan my work and work my plan. And because I was, you know, I was a straight A student, uh, class president, you know, homecoming queen, you know, all of that. Um, so you had a rough childhood that way. <laughs> I, right. Yeah. I was afforded every, my parents didn't say no to me, uh, you know, chasing music. And I, I was playing in bars when I was 13, you know, actually my first bar game was when I was nine, but um they had no reason to say I couldn't do what I was doing. Right. I was delivering on the plan I made because I was ticking all of the other boxes, never got in trouble. Um, you know, certainly wasn't messing around with boys. That wasn't interesting to me. I mm. had boyfriends, but it was not a problem for me to uh, keep that in check. Um, I didn't drink alcohol until I was, um, you know, of legal age. N never have smoked a cigarette in my life, never done a drug. So I, I think that... And I think all of that is, these are hallmarks of a hyper-vigilant, closeted person. And you'll see this in 
in, in people like me, you'll see how rigid and structured and regimented we are. I'm also the child of an alcoholic. And so, you know, my dad, I, I think I saw him drink twice and it was a disaster the two times I saw him drink. That said, um, being the child of an alcoholic, mm-hmm. you, you every day you're doing a SWOT analysis, right? right? You know, so um, the dysfunction uh, that I had was, and, and growing up without resources and having very strict parents who were religious, um, I know that they could have easily, for whatever reason, said, you're not chasing music. That's immoral. You can't play in bars. They just, for whatever reason, they they let me do what I needed to do. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here where they kind of, had they taken a different approach to parenting. It makes you think, what if they were that way? Like, where would your life have gone if you weren't able to embrace and pursue music the way you did, when you did it, if that just wasn't a part of your being at that time when you weren't able to be another part of your being. Yeah. I, and, and I do, I see the, the artist in me as equal weight as other pieces of me. So mm-hmm. my, you know, who I am as a, as a woman, who I am as a gay woman, who I am as a person who likes to make things, you know, create, whether it's a song or a book or, mm-hmm. you know, fix something here in the house. I'm very much a lesbian that way. I'm handy <laughs> and have a couple of toolboxes. But I, had I not been able to focus on my music and 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 go do that, I, you know, Andy, I've given a lot, a lot of thought. I think I know what would have happened to me. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not good. I, I think I know what the kind of, because music opened the aperture for me and I, I got to go all over the world and see different things and, and each culture that I experienced in each place and country and region and state, I saw a little bit more of myself. And it was, it was, it was like very, you don't know what you don't know. And if you think that you're the only gay person on the planet, which I did, I thought I was the only person like this. I mm. thought I was, there was a, you know, a mistake in my birth. I didn't know, you know, what that looked like um, beyond just feeling incredibly isolated. So when I imagine, and, and and I have over the years, what would it have looked like had I not gotten out of that little town, um, which is a fine town, by the way, I think I would have not, I wouldn't be here. Mm. And you, I think you... I probably would have felt like I needed to marry somebody that I couldn't love the way they loved me right. and probably, um, you know. Which happens all the time. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Still happens. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you also seem to have a complicated relationship with God and religion. And I want to read a few things just to give the right context, because it's, it's, it's so hard to fathom how a young person had to be growing up or exposed to this way of thinking. But you say how with the church, you used to hear the words whore, criminal, drunk, homosexual, pervert, liar, non-believer, all strung together so many times that I understood that those were the building blocks of sin and evil doing. Um, you also have said, you've heard gay is wrong, gay is wrong, gay is wrong. And you started to take on the blame for things that happened in your family, fires, tragedies. And you ended up having to make promises or vows, like like basically saying to God, if you 
change who I am, or if you let me become a musician, if I could play at the Grand Old Opry. And it just, it's all so convoluted and, and sad because you had this one part of you, which was music. You were willing to give up love and give up who you are. And it's like, why should you have had to have make a cho- made a choice? You know what I mean? But you did because of where you came from and what the environment was like. Yeah, I, I, I think that when you are, look, faith around the world, right? There are so many, so many faith practices around the world. That, and, and I do think that the kind of general kind of restrictions and suffering, I, I mean, that is the theme of most faith practices is suffering and being willing to suffer for your faith. And, you know, trying to, I think the, the, the key tenet of the faith practices that I admire, which are many beyond having been raised Christian, I don't, I, I'm a faith, I'm a person of faith now, but I don't, I don't go to church, but I think the key tenet is, you know, don't be an asshole. Right. <laughs> and I mean, it should be. Um, and as, you know, Welton Gaddy, the Reverend, uh, the late Reverend Welton Gaddy said in the documentary film, People are seldom so mean as when they're being mean for Jesus. That was my favorite line of the film. I mean, I was going I wrote it down. I was gonna ask you about it, but we're talking about it the now. Good one. When he but said the, that, your first of all, your reaction to that was like, "Holy shit! That is absolutely the most genius thing I've ever heard, and the truest." Was, yeah. Because you see it. Yeah. I, I I tweeted something yesterday that someone posted to me, and I also included their bio. And they called me a fucking retard, okay? And in their bio, it said, loves God. And it's like, the shit that I've seen people do under the cloak of Jesus, or any religion for that matter, it is the meanest kind of thing when it happens in the name of God and religion. And and the, the kind of trickery that comes along with that is that we are so Pavlo... We have such a Pavlovian kind of response to faith, as Americans, it, you know, certainly as a Midwesterner um, who grew up in that community, it it's it's it feels like when you're a closeted queer kid, it feels very oil and water, mm-hmm. right? Because I knew, um, I was baptized at a young age, and I've always had a faith practice. Now I know that a lot of, uh, again, I'm 50, 53 now, so I have a a, a a different evolving perspective on what that must have been like to be the eight year old me that went to her preacher and said, "I want to be baptized. Like I'm, I'm, I'm good to go." You know, his name was Warren Skiles, and he asked, you know, he asked me, "What do you, why do you want to be baptized? What does this mean to you?" And apparently, I, you know, I satisfied that uh, his questions as to it was my faith was i was i ready to be baptized and i wanted to be baptized and i was not i didn't know i was gay when i wanted to be baptized because i've i've wondered that did i want to be baptized to fix me right mm-hmm. um but i was baptized before i realized i was gay i always knew i was different somehow but i had no uh, it was i had no understanding it had anything to do with sexuality i just i felt like i'd lived another life before mm-hmm. frankly um i just felt like I equate it to like buying a computer. You go buy a computer and sometimes the computer is loaded with Microsoft and Word. And I always felt as a young kid that I had had a download of some experiences and uh, maybe that's that was the artist in me. I don't mm-hmm. know. But um, when I realized I was gay, uh, I was nine. 
And I began saying a prayer every, I'm not exaggerating, Andy, when I say every single day of my life, sometimes multiple times a day. And the prayer was, dear God, I promise not to lie. I promise not to cheat. I promise not to steal. Just make me, um, I, I promise to be a good person. Just make me not gay. In your name, I pray. Amen. I prayed it every day. And when I think about, you know, my boys are 10. And when I think about my, you know, my boys having such a deep fear of who they are, mm -hmm. um, it just breaks my heart. And so I, you know, I, I, I'll, on occasion, I'll shed a tear for the little nine-year-old me, but then I raise the fist for the 50-year-old me. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I began to think that the bad things that were happening in my life, in our family, in our town, were uh, God's punishment. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, um, I don't know if you read my book, but um, my cousin David, who was 13, my brother, was, let's see, my brother was 14. David was 13. My, my mom and her sister, Aunt Shar, kind of raised us all in a pack. Uh, my brother, Chris, who was 14. David was 13. My sister was 12. I was 11. And our cousin, David's uh, sister, Carrie, was nine. Uh, David was diabetic, manageable, took shots, took insulin every day. It was just kind of a, we knew what to do as a family. Uh, you know, get a cup of juice. This is not anything that was anticipated to be, uh, to go so wrong. Um, but on a Saturday morning, he was um, put into the hospital and by Sunday afternoon, he was gone. And this was, I knew this was God's punishment to me. Mm. And it was, it was pretty awful, um, awful for, to lose someone so close, but several of these things happened in my life. And I was, I was like, oh shit, I'm, I, I'm causing this. This is me. Yeah, and, and like you said, you look at your own boys and imagine them thinking that kind of shit every day and not being able to tell anybody about it. They're just tortured and going through life that way. It, is un it truly is unfathomable. There's a cruelty yeah. to it that is just beyond comprehension that, that we still live in a world that subjects people to stuff like that. I mean, you talked about this country and Western star, uh, who said to you, like in a conversation when you were together, um, you're not gay, are you? Because that shit's not right. Country music won't have it. That kind of sinful lifestyle. And that kind of set you onto a very bad road. Like you broke up with the love of your life. There was suicidal ideation. There was depression. And so when dealing yeah. with this kind of stuff, and, and then coming out, there was that Alabama radio guy this is when I wanted to punch the fucking wall because he just was like, there was, he was so arrogant. There was no shame at all to anything he was saying. And he was like, you know, you have a song, Shut Up and Dry. Like, why can't you just shut up and sing? Why do we have to know that you're out? Why do we care? Why do we have to hear that? And I thought people like that, they just miss the entire point. And that is that you were living a lie. And I don't know what it's like to live a lie. I really don't. And I've had some hardship in my life, as you know, and we've talked about. A lot of people yeah. have hardship, but a lot of people don't live a lie. And I imagine yeah. that's got to be just the hardest thing in the world to go through life every day pretending to be somebody you're not and not allowing yourself to experience the kind of experiences and joy and love and peace and satisfaction 
that we all take for granted. So you decided during a successful country music career to just say, fuck it, I'm coming out. And that took real courage at that time, because that was like 14 years ago, and in a community that you knew was going to be brutal, was not going to be welcoming. Yeah, it is. It, it is hard to live a, a lie, and I, I you know, I, I think more people do it. Maybe not about their sexuality, but every everyone's got a little something they're holding back, and it varies, right? Right. It's humankind is not a monolith for sure, but I think everybody's got something they're keeping, they're holding back, whether it be from people at work or colleagues or you know, uh, neighbors or a spouse, um, but. The way I like to kind of talk about what it felt like to, you know, which is why I wrote my book and came out the way that I did. And Mm -hmm. we'll talk about that in a second. But again, you don't know when you're, when you're cutting deals with God at age 10 to please make me not gay, I'll just do my work. That'll be enough. The music will be enough. Get me to the stage of the Grand Ole Opry. That'll be enough. You say that in kind of blindly without an understanding of what, you know, companionship love, intimacy, sex, you, you don't know what that will mean Mm -hmm. in your life. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you're cutting all these, uh, you know, I cut all these big deals with God and then, and then life happened, right? I get Mm -hmm. to Nashville and I sign my first record deal. I get, you know, fall in love for the first time. And it, it was a no brainer. Of course I'm going to hide this. Like my, my career is taking off. Of course I'm going to hide this and I can, and I can manage it. And I can, and this will be fine. This will be just different than other people do, but it will be my own version of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned that country singer. Uh, it was John Rich, um, whom, by the way, I'd known him since I was 18. He was 17 when we met. And so we had a long history together. Um, and so, uh, you know, when he asked me point blank in 2005, if I'm, if I was gay, um, I crossed over a threshold there, Andy, that I, I recognized, which is why I went into a tailspin. I had never had to lie about it before mm. because I trained everyone around me that, you know, either I had a boyfriend or I would make jokes when someone would ask about, you know, my life or I'd mm. keep people, I'd be coy, but I'd never had to ask, answer the question, you're not gay, are you? And so when he asked me that, he, he'd been drinking and I was in his car and we were sitting in a studio parking lot and I took a breath and I said, no, I'm not. Mm. And when I got home that evening, I, uh, I think the next morning I told my girlfriend of 12 years, mm. we had a home, we had dogs, we had a koi pond, we had gardens, we had a home, we had a life. I told her, I, I want to. And the relationship, she was, of course, like stunned. Mm. Um, and it, it it's really hard to break up with someone you don't want to be with anymore, but it's harder to break up with someone that you do want to be with. Mm. But I had to do it because I felt threatened. Well, I told myself, I have to do it. I feel threatened. My career, like I felt like I was about to be outed. And that also coincided with the time that someone wrote an anonymous letter to the Nashville Tennessean. Uh, outing me. And the person who received it, one of the journalists, called me and met me in a park and handed me the the letter and said, we'll never speak of it again. Mm. So I felt kind of the walls 
closing in on me. And I broke up with my partner. We sold our house, bought separate houses. I went into a tailspin, as you mentioned. I nearly ended my life one night. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in a bad place. Uh, and so your, you know, your characterization that I somehow I was so courageous, which, you know, I, I will give my, I know I'm, I am a courageous person in everything I do, I hope, but it was more of a fight or flight. So the morning after I didn't end my life, I thought I was going to go back downstairs and pick the gun up again and do it. And so that is when I got on my knees and prayed a prayer that I'd never prayed before, which was dear God, if you see away from me, I need to know it now. And Andy, I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic. I, in a moment, I felt warm. I felt, I felt hope for the first time. I had not felt hope like that since I was a small child. And I knew I was going to come out. Now, was this good news to me? No. It's off. I was like, shit. But I knew that I needed to plan my work mm-hmm. and work my plan. And so that was 2006. And it would, I would begin to work my plan, which was writing my book, um, putting a new team together of managers and agents, um, and educating myself. So I, I came out very strategically. I took a lot of heat for how I came out, that it was so strategic. Um, you know, I came out on the Today Show. Mm-hmm. It looked very orchestrated. And when people have accused me of that, I say, you damn right it was. Those who say those who tell stories about people like me, uh, they're very orchestrated mm-hmm. in how they tell the story that they want people to know about me. Um, you know, uh, lots of organizations around the globe um, deploy a lot of strategy to vilify people like me, to take away our rights. Um, I'm very proud of the strategy. And I wouldn't change a single moment of, of how we, my team and I brought me out of the closet. Yeah. And you did a, I think a a radio show with Rosie O'Donnell afterwards. And she said, what you just did, millions of gay youth, their lives are either going to be changed or saved by what you did. And look, you were a celebrity. You still are. And sometimes you know, if you have that in your arsenal that you can go on the Today Show and deliver a powerful message, not just for yourself, but for the world, that is a beautiful thing. Well, Andy, thanks for saying that. And I, you know, I, the way I looked at it was I have earned my trust capital with country fans, right? So everybody has a fan club. If you're a teacher or, you know, an attorney, everybody has a group of people that they hold sway with. And have influence with, and I. The reason I wanted to tell my story, um, you know, through my book, and you know, let the filmmakers. By the way, Bobby Berleffi and Beverly Copps made the film, and the agreement I had with them from the the day that I agreed to do it was that I want absolutely no editorial say in this. I will make myself available. I will um, help you reach the people you want to reach to talk to, but I want. I don't want to see it until the final cut, which I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, in, in terms of my book, I knew I, I had a feeling that maybe no one else on the planet was as uniquely positioned as I was to speak to 
I, I had a megaphone with fans who had loved me and admired me and bought my records and come to my shows and stood in autograph lines for years. I knew that most of them thought that they didn't know a gay person, mm -hmm. certainly didn't think they admired a gay person. So I knew I was uniquely positioned to say, yep, I'm still the country artist you like. I'm, I'm still the person of faith that you know me to be. I'm still the girl next door, but I'm also and always have been a lesbian and do with that what you will. Mm -hmm. So I feel, um, you know, I think, I think everyone has a memoir in them. Everyone. I think, I think the human experience is worth writing down, but I knew I had a moment, um, to kind of put another card on the table and, uh, kind of leverage that, that capital I had with country fans. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a moment in the film when you were sitting, uh, at the time with your publicist, Howard, and, uh, and he's a publicist, and he looked like a very good one. You know, I imagine he was very good. Uh, but there's this yeah. incredible moment where um, he says something like, you know, religion is all about forgiveness, and you'll be forgiven. And you're like, Howard, Howard, Howard. <laughs> you don't know the country music world. And, and in that moment, we as viewers really started to understand the world you lived in, and you knew it so well. And that's why I say it was courageous, because it's one thing if like Lizzo came out tomorrow and said she's gay. She travels in the mainstream music world where everybody yeah. loves and embraces and has friends and are gay. Like it's, it's different in, in, in Nashville, country music. You made that point very crystal clear in that moment. And I think you stunned him like he really didn't expect you to say that. It was one of those moments where, like, you knew better than the publicist. You knew how this needed to be handled, you know? Yeah, I think, you know, Howard passed away a, a year ago uh, this month. Um, and I, I just want to acknowledge that he was, I think when Howard, I think when he was saying it's all about forgiveness, I, I know he knew exactly what I was going to face. But I mean, he brought a lot of people out of the closet. Um, and he was the guru to to do that. Um, I think he was, what could he do, Andy, other than kind of try to light a path for me and say, you know, you're going to be forgiven. Your fans are going to love you. He was kind of, he had, to, he was kind of my hype man. He was also giving me great counsel, as you saw in that clip where I said something about admitting to being gay. He said, you don't admit to being gay. Right. You admit to a crime. That was great. I love that. Mm-hmm. And, and every time I do, you know, talk to a, you know, do an interview or have a conversation about being gay, I all, every time I use the word acknowledge being gay instead of admitted to being gay, I get, I feel a big bear hug from Howard. But um, the, the thing about country music is there have always been, you know, a few gay people in the industry. The industry itself is much more liberal than than you know the the fan base. I shouldn't say that. I, I don't exactly know the composition of the country fan base right now, but I can tell you that even though there are a few kind of liberal thinkers in the industry, not just in Nashville, but in the kind of wider community writ large, radio promoters, they they were more open minded than than one would think, but they also knew who the consumer, who the end user mm -hmm. of country music was. Mm -hmm. So it was. You know, the country music industry folks, they're not a bunch of country bumpkins. They know that, you know, people are, you know, there's a couple of gay songwriters and they were usually women, right? Because women, gay women 
had a little easier time. It's been my experience that people, you know, we can talk, we can get into that later. But I knew that when, if half of America has an issue with gay people, which, you know, now it may be even more or less, I don't know. But if half of America, the, the, the electorate is, and, and the religious faith communities, we know that they're divided over this. If half, if that's just half of America, what about you, you kind of get more myopically looking at country music bands? It gets smaller. And you have to know that. Mm -hmm. You have to know that there's a reason no one's ever come out in country music mm -hmm. as an artist. Mm -hmm. And 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 to the point you made about Lizzo, I just want to make a quick point about, I was at a, an event the other day and someone said how liberal, you know, pop and rock are and how, why didn't she just be a pop artist? I said, well, number one, I sound like Connie Smith and Loretta Lynn, so that wouldn't work. Um, but number two, I said, I said to them, uh, name for me all of the out artists in pop music. And they said, like now? And I said, like historically. And they said, okay, Freddie Mercury, Elton John, Melissa Etheridge, Ricky Martin. And I said, you know, keep going. They, they struggled to name Adam Lambert, Maybe Brandy Carlisle. And I said, so let's look at, you know, you've named seven. Let's let's roll that up to 15. Is that really a is that is that a lot? In the history of the past 50 years, would you say that pop music is just it's so cool to be gay in, in pop music? Right. No way. The map doesn't bear that out. Yeah. And just for the record, I want to say that I was using Lizzo as an example. I have no idea what her sexuality is, and I couldn't care less. But I, it's just more about yeah, no, her being a mainstream, because uh, I'm sure there are people listening, oh, Andy, Lizzo's gay. Um, but it would be more... You should be so lucky <laughs> if she was gay. Yeah, it's not the, I've gone viral, viral a few times. It's probably not one way I want to go viral. I don't want to be on the receiving end of Lizzo's wrath, okay, because she looks like she can kick some ass. Uh, so... I want to talk about your dad and Ellen and how the book that her mother Betty wrote called Love Ellen was so inspiring and it terrified you, but you gave it to your dad and uh, you said to Ellen, quote, I was fearful I'd never have a parent like your mother. And then you ended up during that same interview saying, my dad is walking in the footsteps of Betty Generous. And I got to mm -hmm. say, your dad... He's just a cool dude. Like, he loves yeah. you for who you are. And that was one of the m moments in the doc that I was just weeping like a toddler where he just said, "I, it doesn't change a damn thing for me because you are the person I love. You. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is. Um, I get still emotional when I think about my journey with my dad. Um I, you know, I grew up on a farm. We worked at, we did farming, outdoor stuff. Again, we were, we were resourceful people with no money. So we were always fixing something up and built, rebuilding a car or whatever. So I spent a lot of time, uh, following my dad around and, and just loved it. Um, and he was, he was a great dad, uh, but he was a redneck and he was a redneck with, hadn't been around the world except for Vietnam. Um, and he like, Almost every other, you know, grown man in my town told gay jokes. We had teach we had had a teacher in our school that <clears throat> called boys faggot. Like this was this was what that looked like mm. back then. And um, my dad told jokes about a lot of things, but when I when he told a gay joke, I I I noticed it. 
And so when I, I came out to my dad in 2005 and I came out to him because I felt us kind of growing apart. Here's what this looks like. When you're gay and closeted and at home on the couch watching a movie with your girlfriend on a Sunday and your dad calls, you don't pick up the phone. You say, think I'll call you later, right? Because like, what are you doing? I'm on the couch with my girlfriend watching it. You know, it's just your lives kind of uh, diverge there. And so he called me in 2005 and said, Shell, I want to talk to you. I, I want to know if I've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. I said, why do you say that? And he said, well, we don't talk like we used to. And I, he said, I miss you. And it was after that, I you know, was talking to my therapist. I said, I think I need to come out to my, to my dad. And my therapist said, that's probably be a good idea. So I had a show in El Dorado Springs, um, Missouri, coming up, Missouri, Missouri. Missouri Boy, I was going to say, you, you know you're from Missouri, Missouri, Missouri when you Miss, say Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> um, I had a show in what, what actually coincidentally was my dad's hometown. He didn't live there anymore, but he was going to come to the show because, you know, when your daughter comes to do a concert in the, you know, the city, city center where you grew up, you go, you know, you go show up and say hi to your old classmates. So my dad used to always come to my hotel room as I was getting in hair and makeup. And that, that was a good couple of hours that we had to talk before my shows. They didn't come to a lot of my shows, but he came to that one. And my stepmom, uh, Verna did not come with him, which was, uh, by the way, she's amazing. And, but it was a conversation I needed to have with him. alone. So on the bus that night, I couldn't sleep. I was up all night. I knew I was going to do it. I had to do it. Right. And so he walked into my hotel room and the minute he walked in, I said, hey, I call him Pippi. Hey, Pippi, I got to talk to you. And he said, okay. And I said, he said, are you okay? And I began to cry. And, and he re- I remember he reached down and like, he was still, he wouldn't break eye contact with me, but he reached down and put his hand on the bed to find where he was going to sit. And he sat down and I fell apart and he said, you're, you're sick. You have cancer. You're dying. And like mm. he went, his mind went crazy. And I said, uh, no, dad, I have to tell you something. I've, I want to tell you because I feel like we're growing apart and I'm really scared to tell you. And he said, oh, okay. And I said, I'm, I'm gay. And he said, are you sure? I said, yes. And he said, but you're so pretty. What about, what about all of those guys you dated? And I said, I'm, I'm sure dad. And then through the course of the next couple of hours, we, of course, he had some anger. You know, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you think you could tell me? And I said, Dad, just, he said, but why? I want to know why you didn't trust me. And I said, Dad, you told gay jokes. Like, and he just buried his face in his hands and just cried. And at the end of the conversation, after I'd gone through two boxes of tissue and it was time to really get myself together to go uh, to sound check, I said, Dad, do you, do you love me even though? And he grabbed me by the shoulders and squared me to him, squared my shoulders to, directly to him. And he said, kid, I don't love you even now. I love you because. Mm. And that was it. Well, you're causing some tears here in the studio with that. Uh, Jen over here is a mess. And like I said, I got three daughters. So it, that, that shit really resonates with me because I can't, I, I just can't imagine not I mean, I, I tell my kids all the time, be who you are, be what you want to be. I'll help you do whatever. I can't imagine a parent not being there. And I can imagine that coming out to a parent has to be the most 
especially if you grew up in that kind of environment. It'd be different if you grew up in Greenwich Village and your mother was an artist and your dad was this, that, whatever. But it must have been really hard for you. And and he, it sounds like he just went to the right place right away. He 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 did. And he's um, my dad is a remarkably emotionally intelligent person. And you know, back to that kind of trust capital that we mm-hmm. talked about with country music fans. That was my that was my single hope there too. Yeah, with my dad and and Oprah actually after shortly after I came out, Oprah asked me to come be on her show in Chicago, and my dad called me and said, "Hey, Oprah called me," and I said, "Dad, Oprah didn't call you." And yeah, she called me and she wants me to Skype in to the show when you're on it. And it was like my dad didn't even have a computer at that time. I said, "Okay, Dad, we'll get you hooked up." And then he called back. A little while later, he said, okay, I'm not Skyping. And I said, oh, you got canceled? And he said, no, Oprah's uh, <laughs> sent, sent me plane tickets. She wants me to come to Chicago. And so my dad, so funny, he 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 didn't bring any clothes. He, he was on the Oprah show in the same clothes he flew in, but that's so my dad. Um, but there's a point in that in that episode of, of Oprah where she's got my dad sitting on the front row there. And she said, she said, Stan, you had been this guy that told gay jokes and, you know, thought being gay was of the devil and that's what you taught your kids and that's what everyone in this community thought. Why, Stan? What was it about that moment that Shelly came out to you? Why were you why were you able to go from A to Z? And my dad said, Oprah, I knew her. I knew her heart. Mm-hmm. I knew her integrity. I knew who she was. And if she's telling me this is who she is, that's who God made her to be. Yeah, and I saw that, and that was another beautiful moment. But you know, when you talk about your fans, as a the fan who's in the film, and she says something like, "God still loves Shelley; he just wishes she would have a different sexuality." And it's like, yeah, <laughs> no, that's not. That is not. You clearly, it's like that scene in Annie Hall with Marshall McLuhan, and he's like, "You know nothing of my work." Like if Jesus were here, he'd be like, "No, you know nothing of my work." That's not what I'd be right. thinking, you know. Um, yeah, but uh, the other thing too with the reactions from your family, which I thought were so incredibly sweet, when your sister is talking to your niece and nephew, little Amelia, she's seven years old, and she just ends up saying, you know, gay people aren't bad people, or your nephew Max, who was eleven at the time, he admits to making gay jokes, he admits to not being kind or nice to gay people, and. That just spoke to me in so many ways. First of all, that like an eleven-year-old kid could just be so honest with his feelings that way. Uh, yeah. And but it also speaks to like the whole Dick Cheney thing. It's like, why are we still living in this world where, unless you have a gay person in your family or unless you know a gay person, like, why can't we have the capacity to understand how people need to live and live honestly and openly without it just like being in our front yard, you know? Yeah, and and I think that's one of the things, you know, we need to get better at that. And by the way, thanks for mentioning Max and and, uh, Amelia. Max is now in law school in Utah, and (laughs) Amelia is 22 years old and living with us in in New York City. Um, And she's an American Airlines flight attendant, uh, really, really cool kid. And, you know, she's she's told me what it was like to be in, in that small town when after I came out, she actually told me something that was really disturbing that she'd never shared before. She said recently that one of her teachers at school like said something to her and like took, she had a rainbow sticker on her notepad and the teacher took it away from her 
And she said, you're, we're not doing that. You know, I know that's about your aunt and we're not doing that here. And Millie was like, I didn't even know what a rainbow, like, I didn't even know what that meant. She said, now I know what she was doing. She was, you know, uh, stigmatizing me. But, mm. um, you know, one of the things we have to get better at, Andy, is being curious as a people and not what, not needing, not requiring this kind of hardship to land on our front step before we do something or feel something about it. Right. I was, you know, when North Carolina was trying to pass that amendment to their, um, in, in the state uh, to ban uh, marriage equality, I went there uh, to the Capitol with uh, my good friend, Mitchell Gold. And he's taught me a lot about how to be an advocate and how to, he gets in people's faces. That's not quite my personality. He's, he's changed the world by doing things his way. But we went together and we were talking about we were talking to lawmakers and I I could not believe that there was a lawmaker. We were in his office and he looked at Mitchell and me and said, you are the tear in the fabric of society. Mm. And and then as it would turn out, you know, this guy's son was gay. The DJ from Alabama, you mentioned, mm -hmm. his daughter came out of the closet not <laughs> long after that well, film came what out. What goes around comes around, huh? Yeah. And then, and I, you know, I don't know where these two gentlemen are on their trajectory, um, on their kind of level of accepting and celebrating their children, but I'll bet it's, they're further along than they were when they said that we were the tear in the fabric of society. What I would hope for is that, you know, when people say I advocate for women because I have a daughter, well, advocate for women just because you're smart enough to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, well, I'm a, you know, I've changed my mind on gay issues because my daughter is gay or my son's gay. We've got to get, we've got to get better at that mm -hmm. because, um, you know, I want to be an advocate for all communities, um, you know, black and brown people, um, you know, the Jewish community, my, my sons are, um, you know, Jewish. Um, uh, but, but I, I want to be an advocate for the Jewish community because my grandfather told me about world war one or world war two and being a part of the big red one and, you know, liberating concentration camps mm -hmm. and taking pictures of it that I still have that no one has seen. Like I, I'm an advocate because someone told me a story about how people were harmed and killed and subjugated. I'm an advocate because that sounds horrible to me. And how could we do that? Um, and so we got to get better at being curious and empathetic and advocating for people that we might never meet. And we also have to get better at just letting people live their lives. I mean, when you came out on Today, it was so awesome when you just like a beaming five-year-old at a candy store just screamed into the camera, I'm out. I'm super duper out and I'm super duper gay. Like, why should you have had to have gone through any of that? Why can't you just be super duper happy? with who you are, yeah. right? But, you know, now I feel like a beauty pageant when it's like, I wish I wish for peace on earth, you know, like yeah. the world is kind of no, cold I mean, cruel I love, sometimes. I love your beauty pageant aspirations. I mean, look, we have we come a long way? And you mentioned Rosie earlier and what a, what a gift she's been to, you know, the world mm -hmm. at large, but as a pioneer, she and Ellen and sure. Melissa Etheridge and Elton John, so many that I, of course, stand on, on their shoulders. Um, you know, why, to answer the question, why couldn't I, why did I have to hide? Well, let me go back to being a country music singer and songwriter and performer was not my hobby, right? And I think a lot of people, people, one of the most defensive things that people say to me is, 
oh, I, I could never have hidden. I couldn't do what you did. I could never have hidden. Now, some people, as you mentioned at the top of the program, have not been able to hide. But it's usually straight people who say to me, oh, I could never have hidden. How did you, you know, that's, I, I couldn't keep a secret. Like, I, I couldn't have told that lie. And I, I often say, well, what's your career? And well, I'm an attorney or I'm a plumber. And I, I pose this to them. What if the thing that you were hiding or felt like you had to hide, what if, if that were known by people, whether it be the world or your, you know, people in your ecosystem, what if that would cause you to lose your job as an attorney forever? Mm -hmm. What if that means you have to find another thing to do to pay your mortgage, mm -hmm. to eat, to have running what? What, what if? And it, it usually kind of stuns them and I'm like, oh, because see, it wasn't a hobby. This was my, I loved music. I knew I wanted to be a musician before I knew I was gay. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think you and I can talk for nine hours. But, we can. And maybe okay. <laughs> well, in our, in our final moments, I want to ask you just a couple of things. There was this January 4th op-ed in the New York Times by Anna Marks, which when I read it, I was like, what the fuck is the point of this thing? Like, why are we needing to discuss Taylor Swift's sexuality, whatever that is? But you were like the first paragraph in that piece. And what was, what went through your head when you saw it? Did you have any idea it was coming out? Yeah, um, I had no idea it was coming out. I was on a conference call when my phone, there was a family thread, my, my wife's side of the family, there was a family thread and someone said, uh, hey, Shelly, you're all over this New York Times piece, or not all over it, you're, you're mentioned, you're referenced in this New York Times piece. And um, I hit the like button. I, mm -hmm. you know, the New York Times has, I, you know, I'm on occasion name checked in there, usually when another country artist or someone else comes out or... Um, and so I assumed it was favorable and it was a, quite a lengthy article and it, I didn't read it until I think that night mm -hmm. and I read it and I, I, I'm a very measured person again, hypervigilant, uh, former closeted person, um, very measured about everything I do. I read it and I didn't, it's, it didn't feel right to me. It felt, you know, number one, I've, I've known Taylor since she started out in the business, you know, people have. You know, they're the gaylers, um, which are a contingent of her fan base that really want her to be gay. They really want her to be. They read through. They, it's like a it's like a fairy tale. They they want to read through and and um, pull pieces out of her lyrics and try to put together the puzzle. And by the way, those of us who have been fans of TV stars, musicians, we've been doing this kind of thing forever. It used to be Teen Beat magazine, though, right? You look at it, you see where they are, who they might be with. We, we speculate, but that the paper of record would endeavor into such a lengthy, not helpful, not even, I just, I thought it was an awful decision. I'm not saying, I don't want to make a commentary on the writer's uh, style or, you know, what she did narratively, but I think the New York Times did it, made a horrible decision to do this. And what struck me most about it is that this is the most powerful, one of the most powerful women in the world right now. And every time she has something, we're, we try to take it from her. And, and mm -hmm. that, that the, the world writ large is going to take her, the, one of the most powerful, courageous, 
um, in, integrity-driven people that I've experienced in my lifetime, we're going to take her integrity from her. We're going to we're going to say she's not courageous enough to do X. Mm-hmm. That um, that she, it, we're, it, it felt like we were trying to take her power away. And and again, irrespective of anyone's sexual orientation. By the way, she has on record said before that she likes advocating for communities of which she is not a part. The queer community was what they were talking about. She's told us, um, and I think it's unhelpful for the paper of record, the New York Times, that belongs on TMZ. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was a, an awful decision. And and I, so I waited a couple of days and then I did a, you know, a lot of journalists were asking me to weigh in on it. And I just said, no, I, I don't, I don't want to. And then I posted something that I think it was a horrible decision. And, you know, I got, I got some heat, but that's okay. I can handle it. Yeah, it was it was bizarre. It was really bizarre, and it showed you where even in a mainstream publication like the New York Times that we're still talking about this in such a ridiculous way. Um, and, and for me, Andy, just just one more thing to button that up: why it bothered me that I was name checked in it, um, because I've they name checked the moment where I nearly ended my life mm-hmm. at the in the first couple of paragraphs. What I didn't love about it was that it. I've put my story out there. I've talked about it publicly. I've written mm-hmm. my book. It's that there was no context given. None. It was, I felt victimized, mm-hmm. clickbaity. It felt clickbaity and it kind of robbed me of my triumph. I think at some point in the article, it would have been nice had they said, uh, by the way, you know, she didn't end her life um, and she is living, you know, happily uh, and healthfully, uh, healthily, you know, in New York City with her family. Um, also, I, I guess there, when they when the piece came out, I began getting like hashtags and stuff that rest in peace, Shelley Wright. Like there were a whole bunch of folks who thought I had passed, and that's disturbing to you know my family when they log on and they see R.I.P. Shelley Wright. Like that's that's disturbing. So I I I thought it was uh, I didn't appreciate being clickbait. No, and and it's so true what you're saying. Without context, to just throw that in there, you know, when I learned about what you had done in terms of coming to a point where you you almost took your life, I knew the before, and then I was able to see the after. So there was context, yeah. and I got it, and people got it. I, I could talk about that op-ed for hours alone, but you had an amazing music career. You lived pretty much every dream you had, you put out nine studio albums, 17 hit singles that hit the, the Billboard charts. You've had songs in the top 10. You've had a number one country song. You played the Grand Old Opry, you know. You achieved all that. And I'm curious, like, how much of your life today is music? Do you get to perform? Yeah. Do you Are you going to record again? I think 16 was the last album you put out. Yeah. Um, I think in 2018, I did a Christmas record and a... Uh, I did two EPs. One was a holiday record. One was um, just not a holiday record. Um, I was on tour when COVID hit. So I feel lucky in that, you know, when I came out in 2010, I that began kind of my doing DEIB work in corporate spaces, faith communities, higher ed. So that was kind of a side hustle. I always kind of had more of that than I wanted to do. Um, and so I was, you know, 90% music touring writing for, you know, TV and film, um, and, uh, 10% corporate stuff. 
So when COVID happened, I was on tour, you know, had to sit at home like everybody else did. And a couple of weeks into COVID, I, I said to my wife, I think I'm about to pivot. She said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know. I feel something, I feel COVID is bigger than, than we're being told. This has felt like kind of a liminal space. I feel like I'm about to do something different. And at that time, my former and kind of current longstanding clients in the DEIB space were reaching out a lot for virtual events. And George Floyd had been murdered. Breonna Taylor had been murdered. And people were trying to convene important conversations virtually. So I began, you know, just responding to that kind of demand. And then I took on a new client, which is a global design build firm. Uh, I took them on late summer of 2020. And then in March of 2021, I came on full-time as the chief diversity officer for an organization called Unispace. Mm -hmm. So will I record again? Yes. Mm. I'm always writing. I'm actually writing for a musical right now. Do you know who Jean Smart sure. is? She, um, she, yeah, she has acquired the life rights uh, of my memoir, mm -hmm. like me, and we are making a Broadway musical. Awesome. Isn't that crazy? No, it's not. It's awesome. <laughs> I so, can see it. So you know how these, they, they take forever, sure. as, as you know. Yep. Uh, but, uh, you know, Andy, no one, I'm, I've always been a super lucky person. And I, I do, I wake up daily and I marvel at, yeah, who would have, who'd have thunk it? Ain't life something. Well, it's, it is so true. I mean, I have had such incredible highs and lows in my life, things that I never thought would happen, that if literally someone said to me today, you know what, Andy, in 2032, you're going to be president of the United States. And I'd be like, all right. I'd be like, Chad on SNL. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And because life is crazy. Life is a roller coaster. If Donald Trump can ascend to the highest Anyone can. Yeah. Right. Anyway, Dan. So before I let you go, in our final minute, tell me about the Like Me yeah. Foundation. Yeah. So Like Me is an organization that I launched shortly after I came out. I had a nonprofit I started in 1999 called Reading, Writing, and Rhythm. We provided musical instruments into public schools all around the nation. And then when I came out, I saw a different opportunity to put focus and resources and use my voice um, to our flagship project with Like Me was to build the first brick and mortar LGBTQ center uh, in Kansas City, my hometown, uh, which we did, which is called the Like Me Lighthouse. Um, after five years, we then kind of cycled that back into the local community, and it is now the Kansas City Center for Inclusion. So, yeah, it's been a, a thrill to get to you know leverage my my voice and my capital for the Like Me organization. Well, that is beautiful, and Shelley, you are really an amazing person, and truly inspiring and uh i love your story the good the bad the ugly because li that's what life is life is good bad and ugly it's just what you do with it right and that's um right. uh keep doing what you're doing you know keep doing thank what you're you doing. Andy. that that really means a lot to me i've enjoyed uh the past year uh being in the back room as a, as a listener um i have loved so you're the one <laughs> I, i'm the one um no i'm the one of millions i'm sure i you're you're podcast just gets better and better and better. You have great guests and I love the peel back the onion. I, you know, you're getting, you may be having people on with different kind of uh, journeys on the top line, but at the bottom line, you're getting down just to the human experience and not, not a lot of people do that really well. And, and you and your team are knocking it out of the park. I'm just so I'm beyond honored to be on the podcast and to know you. I've been wanting to, um, I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time since 
since I learned of of, of Adrian's uh, death. <clears throat> and I admire you. I get, can get a little emotional here. Um, I admire who you are in the world and how you move through the world using your public capital mm. to to try to bring about our better angels. You're doing great work, Andy. Well, thank you for that. Let's get together and have a meal and talk about Donald Trump behind his back. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. You've been incredibly generous with your time, and uh, I, I look forward to that. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Thank you.